you to imagine with me this morning a hypothetical conversation. Imagine that one of you came up to me and told me that you really wanted to become an author. I'd say, oh, how wonderful. Uh, so then I'd probably ask, well, what kind of things have you written? And what if you sort of just chuckled and said, well, well, I know how to write the alphabet. I'd probably give you a blank stare. A bit dumbfounded, I'd probably ask something along the lines of, well, do you know how to write any sentences? And what if you replied, oh, no, sentences, I don't need those, but I'm really good, I mean, excellent, great at writing the alphabet. I'm not for sure I would know what to do. And yet, it's just as ridiculous for any of us to claim to be Christians without practicing and becoming the righteousness of God. It would be just as ridiculous to say, I'm a Christian, if you're not actively pursuing God's righteousness in your life, as it would for you to decide to be an author that could not write sentences. I don't think this is the way we usually think of Christianity, though. Many of us think Christianity is simply a bit of mental assent, trust in God, trust that Jesus exists, something along those lines. But the Bible and the apostles that have written the New Testament are all emphatically clear that for us to be Christians, it means that we must be actively following Christ and pursuing God's righteousness in our lives. Here's what Paul says in first, uh, 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I have to admit to you that when I was constructing the sermon series, I sent titles and scripture texts to Betty several weeks ago about what I was going to preach as we ended up finishing uh, the series that is about being disciples, uh, being disciplined disciples, is I think what I titled it. And I was doing a lot of it from memory and just briefly looking up passages that I wanted to go with the direction of the sermon series. And I was thinking about wrapping up a series on discipleship and what better way than to talk about you all going out and making disciples. And just... From memory, I thought, oh yes, we're all ambassadors of Christ. But then this week, as I began to read the text, I realized that's not what Paul's saying here, actually. Not that we can't all be ambassadors for Christ, but that's certainly not what he's trying to say to us in verses 20 and 21. You see, he uses the pronoun we and our in both verses, 20 and 21, but they imply two different groups of people from verse 20 to 21. In verse 20, Paul isn't commanding us to be ambassadors for Christ. He's saying that he and Timothy were ambassadors of Christ to the Corinthians. And that'll mean something, and we'll get into that. But I do have this apology that this is what happens when we sometimes run ahead of ourselves. Oh, we know what Scripture means. We always have to be careful to read it and see what exactly is the Bible saying. So I changed it up a little bit. And today isn't on making disciples, which is what the title is in your bulletin, but rather it's on the righteousness of God. Because what Paul is saying in verses 20 and 21 is that God became human so that we might become like God. 
And he's saying, or at least implying, that this is the most important aspect or point about Christianity. This is all of it encapsulated in that little phrase used often by the early church fathers, God became human so that we might become God. So what is Paul saying? He says that he, or he says we actually, are ambassadors of Christ. Well, if you read the introduction to 2 Corinthians, you'll find out that the we there is Paul and Timothy as they are traveling and preaching. And they are ambassadors for Christ, but this doesn't just imply that they're missionaries, but it implies something about their message. Ambassadors speak with authority. An ambassador in our modern day parlance is the same as it was in the ancient world. Somebody who goes out to speak and negotiate in behalf of a king of one power with the king or queen of another power. Paul is claiming that he and Timothy speak with the authority of Jesus, who is the head of the church and who is king of the cosmos. And what that also means is that Paul and Timothy know the plans of God, which would mean for us that we are able to know the plans of God and that like them, we are going to be asked to participate in those plans. And Paul's appeal then, as an ambassador with the authority of the King Jesus, is that we would be reconciled to God. This is verse 20. In the second part of verse 20, Paul says, as through God we were making an appeal through us, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now what does reconciliation mean? Well, The way we use it in modern day language is usually if you get into an argument or a fight with somebody, then later on you would be reconciled to them. You would repair your friendship or you would repair your relationship. In scripture, what Paul is emphatically appealing for us to do is to be at peace with God. But that's not something that we can create in and of ourselves. Rather, it's what Jesus has done during his life, during the incarnation. So he's saying that Jesus has come as God in the flesh. And he has repaired the relationship that has been broken between humanity and God so that we might have an active and participatory relationship with God. This is what it means to be reconciled. And so reconciliation in the New Testament is an image or it's a metaphor of salvation. It doesn't completely exhaust the explanation of what it means to be saved in Christ, but it does go a long way to describing what it means to experience salvation with God, that we are saved from our own inadequacies, our own desires, our own sins. We're saved from doing life the way we would like to do it, in rebellion to God, and we have been reconciled by the actions of God himself. And this is Paul's appeal in verse 20. So he says that he and Timothy are ambassadors, ones who speak with the authority of God, and their appeal, their main appeal, is that we would be reconciled to God. They are simply God's representatives to us, that this is the truth of God being revealed in the world. And then verse 21 further explains what Paul is already saying in verse 20. And verse 21 is the more complicated of the two. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Several tricky phrases here. The first, simply that he made him. 
What does that mean? Well, that God as Trinity decided before the foundations of the earth that Jesus would happen. See, when we're talking about God, we can talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as being eternal, being infinite, being beings that do not exist in time. But Jesus Christ is not exactly that. Jesus is the Son of God come to us, but Jesus Christ definitely has a beginning, though he has no end. Jesus was born of Mary. We don't often speak about Mary except around Christmas. But what Paul is alluding to is that Jesus began with his conception and birth by the Virgin Mary, raised by Joseph, preached and had a ministry, and then died on the cross and was raised again. And he becomes the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that Jesus' life is very much a model for us in every single way, that he demonstrates for us what it means to be a human being in perfect communion reconciliation, reconciled to God. And what this then entails is eternal life. That death could not contain Him. Death could not hold Him. But He raised again on the third day after being crucified, and He is eternal. So that Jesus embodied humanity and God in one person is now in heaven and will be with us forever as our embodied mediator between humanity and God. So Jesus was made, though the Son of God was not made. What we have coming together then is God's eternal plan meeting us in time so that we might understand at least a little bit of that plan and be able to participate. And then he says specifically that he made him sin who was not sin. Paul doesn't say that Jesus was made a sinner because we know that Jesus never did sin. So what is he talking about here? Well, the Greek word, as well as the Hebrew word for sin, can also refer to a sin offering. So that in the Old Testament, the same family of words, or the same root word, both refers to human failure, missing the plan that God has for us, sin, but also the offerings that were made for that sin. How is Jesus a sin offering? Well, I'm sure many of your minds go directly to his death. He was sacrificed. But realize, then you're really just thinking about the sacrifice for our sin, but not what was offered. And in the Old Testament, there is at least equal weight given to explaining both the sacrifice, how it happens and what it does, but also to what kind of animal, at least in Old Testament terms, is being sacrificed. And so when Paul talks about Jesus being made sin... Or if you would like to think about it as Jesus being made a sin offering for us, he's not simply talking about his death and resurrection, but he's talking about the nature of what was offered to God as a sacrifice. And that would be the incarnation. So what we do not have in Jesus' death or in Jesus affecting our reconciliation is that God the Father in some way had to kill God the Son and that they were in any way separated during that event. But rather, what is being spoken of by Paul is that Jesus' entire life is the offering given by God Himself and received by God Himself so that we might have a way to be reconciled to God, a way to participate in what God is doing. In other words, God becomes human, fully human. He was a baby. 
He was a child. He was an adolescent. He was an adult. He died, just like we all will, or we all do. And in this, in every aspect or every stage of human life, God has redeemed it, picked it up, lifted it up, elevated human life to the place where in each of those stages, even death, there can be full participation by us as humans with God. And it was perfect. Jesus lived a perfect life. And so he recapitulated or took what it meant to be human and recast that in the exact image and likeness of himself as the Son of God. In other words, if you've ever worked with metal at all, I remember in high school shop class we got to play with pewter. It's really easy to cast. And you can cast little chess figures or you can cast figurines. You could, if you're really good, you could cast something like a doorknob or something like that. But what would happen then if it got beat up and dented? Well, believe it or not, you could just melt it back down and recast it into the perfect image that it began as. Humanity is sort of like that. We were created in the image and likeness of God. That image refers to the future incarnation of Jesus, meaning that image that we are created to already looked forward to God becoming a human in the person of Jesus. So we weren't complete in the image of God. We were simply made in the image of God. But with Jesus becoming human, he is recasting what it means to be human in the very image and likeness of God so that Jesus can be called the exact image, the exact representation of the Father. He tells Philip in the Gospel of John, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And that's what we're being recast or remade into because Jesus has offered this perfect life to God And it has been accepted by God so that we might too have this real participation. So then what comes next is the point of our reconciliation, the point of our salvation, and really the point of Christianity in general. It's to become the righteousness of God. What an odd phrase Paul uses. It's very similar to what Peter says, that we become partakers of the divine nature. Notice that Paul here doesn't say we become like God's righteousness, but that we become God's righteousness. Now maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. We have to talk about what exactly is the righteousness of God. This is something that Christians have argued about ever since the New Testament was written. Because in any language, English, Greek, Hebrew, whatever you want to use to write this phrase, it can mean two things. Righteousness of God could either mean that righteousness is an action of God. The righteousness of God as if righteousness is something that God does. Or it could mean the righteousness of God in the sense of something that God is. Sort of like you could say, oh never mind, I can't think on my feet that fast of an example, but that's okay. The righteousness of God can either be an action or an attribute. So what does Paul mean? Are we becoming the righteousness of God as an action of God, meaning we do righteousness? Or are we becoming the righteousness of God, which is an attribute of God, meaning we become the very righteousness that God is? Well, why does it have to be an either or? Actually, I think in the book of Romans and Galatians, which should color and shade the meaning for books like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, what we have is Paul refusing to separate God's actions from God's attributes. And later on, this will become a Christian doctrine. 
meaning as later Christians talk about God, what we say God does is who we say God is. God is both loving and God is love, for example. God is righteous and God does righteousness. We're to become the kind of people that Jesus was talking about in the portion of Scripture Justin quoted. That there is no difference between what comes from our hearts, our desires, and heart and Scripture is really a way of referring to the entire person, in what we do or what we say. As we become like Christ, we become God, or at least His righteousness and His love and His faithfulness. We are transformed into the kinds of people who are truly honest, made in the image of God, meaning that what we say and what we do is who we are, and vice versa. So what does righteousness even mean, anyway? Well, the simplest definition for righteousness in Scripture is that it refers to both the character of God and the action of God of Him making things right in the world. But making things right doesn't have to always imply a fall or a problem, even though that's what we live with every day. We live as sinners, striving to become like Christ, who never sinned. But righteousness, or making things right, can simply refer to a progression, a growth, or a coming to fullness, a reaching of a goal. I think this is probably the best way to take the righteousness of God throughout Scripture. So that as God created in Genesis we first see his righteousness made manifest. What he created was good, even though it was not complete. And it was the plan of God to work with and in creation to bring what he had created to its fullness. And in Jesus Christ, he does that. He brings us and the world that we live in into the possibility of reaching its fullness, which will be completed at the second coming of Christ. So what does it mean to be a Christian? I just spent uh, a great amount of time going through two verses for you and what I think is a lot of detail. I hope that you were able to keep up and caught what was going on here. But what Paul is saying, as an ambassador of God, one who speaks with both of his authority and knows his plan, is that your Christianity needs to involve you becoming the very righteousness that God is and does. That sounds like a lot of work. And so in our conclusion, you might have noticed that Christianity does sound like a lot of hard work. And yet it's not work that we do alone. For remember, who is the principal agent behind our reconciliation? Well, it is not us, you or me, who is able to achieve reconciliation with God. But Jesus himself, who is our peace and establishes peace between us and between God. Jesus himself has granted to us the ability to live a life like his own because he has identified with us. He knows what it's like, I think of Alexandra, to be a little baby without words and yet these huge emotions that she just can't quite process and so that usually turns into some type of tantrum. God knows what that's like. God knows what it's like to be a little bit older To be a high schooler, I got to spend some time with them yesterday. And to go through life figuring out school and their future and wanting to sort of stay in high school, but also wanting to grow up and move on. God knows what it's like to be a parent. God knows what it's like to experience life loving somebody so much and yet having no control over what they do. 
God knows what it's like to be a mature human being. He knows what it's like to be one of us. And he didn't do that as a simple science experiment. He didn't just need to find out, in other words. But he identifies with us in this way to lead us to salvation. And the salvation that we're being led into is not passive. By no means is it passive. Just read the New Testament. Paul is commanding us in some places to become living sacrifices, in other places to become obedient, in other places to be preachers and pastors and teachers and leaders. And here he is commanding us to become God's righteousness. To be the sort of people who are right with God, who have a life that is being brought towards maturity, the type of maturity that we see displayed in Jesus. And to be the type of people that live among each other and do the works of righteousness so that we help others become mature like Christ as well. And as we do this, this is our salvation. It's not simply or merely that we were saved to live as righteous, but as we live as righteous and become the righteousness of God, we are being saved. And we were saved yesterday, and we were being saved yesterday, and we will be saved tomorrow, and we are being saved tomorrow. This is the nature of New Testament salvation. God is here with us. He's willing to work with us. All He asks is that we cooperate with Him. But that cooperation entails a lot more than simply believing in His existence. Believe it or not, God doesn't need you to believe in His existence. It's the truth whether you believe it or not. God is calling you into this new life that is cast into the image and the likeness of Christ. Would you bow and pray with me, please? Father God, Lord, we thank You for the many blessings that You give to us. Foremost among them that Your Son would become human and that we would have a name for Him, Jesus, and that we could call upon that name so that He would come to our aid and help us to grow and to live a life like He lived. So that we might experience salvation here and now and be a part of communicating that salvation to the world as well as having eternal life, Lord, that we have the hope of the resurrection. We ask that You would continue to push us and make us grow into the completeness of Your image your likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.